I am a survivor of both Hurricane Katrina when I was in Mississippi and Hurricane Sandy here in New Jersey. And there's a clear link between the transportation crises and the climate crises. I am a fighter for all people. I'm a fighter for the environment. I think we're all connected, you know, people, the environment, the animals, the plants. I think when you harm one, you harm all. The following is the opening paragraph of the essay that Congressman and civil rights leader John Lewis wrote shortly before his death on July 17th. He asked to have it published by the New York Times on the day of his funeral, which was two days ago on Thursday, July 30th, 2020. While my time here has now come to an end, I want you to know that in the last days and hours of my life, you inspired me. You filled me with hope about the next chapter of the great American story when you used your power to make a difference in our society. Millions of people, motivated simply by human compassion, laid down the burdens of division. Around the country and around the world, you set aside race, class, age, language, and nationality to demand respect for human dignity. Hi, everyone. You've tuned into the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity in our communities. I'm John Zimmerman, founder of the Active Towns Initiative and your honored host during this podcast journey. Thank you so much for joining us. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. Our guest on this episode, number 36, if you're keeping track, is Charles Brown with Rutgers University. And as you can probably tell by his statements in the cold opening, he's actively involved in bringing a much needed equity lens to the work we're all doing and trying to create safer, more inviting environments for everyone. But before we dive in, let me just mention that this episode is being brought to you by the generous support of our donors. Thank you all so much. Later during the intermission, I'll let you know how you too can help support our efforts to create safer, more inviting all ages and abilities environments that promote a culture of activity. Okay, what do you say we get this conversation with Charles Brown rolling? Charles Brown. Charles, how are you today? John, I'm doing fantastic. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So where are you joining us from today? I am currently located in the um, heart of central Jersey, New Jersey. I'm located in a town called Somerset, New Jersey. Somerset, New Jersey. Now, I have never been to that neck of the woods. Tell us a little bit about it. So depending on who you ask, uh, there are different opinions about where Somerset, New Jersey is geographically in New Jersey. Since I'm new to Jersey, I've only been here in the past nine years. 
I affiliate more with that, the notion that Somerset, New Jersey is located in central Jersey. Many others would say that it's probably located in northern Jersey. And then there are some who would say it is in southern Jersey. So it's located in central Jersey. It's a a very suburban-ish town, one of the most diverse towns in the country. Uh, You have many different languages spoken, many different racial and ethnic minority groups. I like to joke and say when I go to my son's soccer practice, it's much like the United Nations. Uh, It's a really beautiful thing. And one of the main reasons why we decided to move here and to purchase a home here, Uh, in addition to, you know, the decision to work for Rutgers University, uh, which is less than 10 minutes away. Ah, fantastic. Okay, so that was my next question. The follow-up question is, since you're a senior researcher and an adjunct professor at Rutgers, you're about a 10-minute commute then. What type of commute is that? Uh, that 10 minutes, is that a driving commute, a transit commute, a bike commute? Yes, yeah, so we decided to drive because we have three children. They are 10 and under. And so given my wife's commute and my commute to work, It would be really difficult, as you can imagine, to bike uh, three different kids to school. Uh, So what we decide to do in the morning is to drive. We both drive into our place of employment. That was pre-COVID. Now, during COVID, of course, we're all working virtually from home, and the kids are attending school from home as well. Okay. Now, you mentioned that it's a little bit of a suburban sort of environment. If you were to choose to try to use active mobility to get to your place of work, is it something that is supportive uh, in the neighborhood or do we still have a little bit of work to do? Oh, absolutely. Uh, When I say suburban in the Jersey context, that is much different than suburbia uh, in other parts of the United States. Um, I have access to public transit. As I stated, I'm less than 10 minutes away from Rutgers, which has Uh, a train network that goes into New York City, Philadelphia, and most of the Northeast Corridor. I can easily jump in an Uber. I could easily bike to work. I could jog to work. It's a very walkable, bikeable community surrounded by all of the transportation modes one would need to get safely to and from their locations. So in that respect, we're very blessed in terms of our locality. Okay, so it sounds like uh, the distances are there, so proximity would allow it. And uh, you say that it's walkable, bikeable, even runnable. Have you Even runnable. I do. I run quite (laughs) often, actually. Mostly during the nighttime, I prefer the run. But we we would be considered, in a planning sense, a first-ring suburb of a major city, with that major city being the city of New Brunswick, New Jersey. So we're like the first ring suburb of that, if not the second ring, depending on who you ask. But uh, very densely populated. And that's why it's kind of hard to compare it to other suburban locations throughout the country. Yeah, absolutely. Why don't we dive a little bit into the type of work that you actually do at Rutgers? Again, you're the senior uh, researcher at uh, the Allen M. Voorhees uh, Transportation Center, but then you're also an adjunct professor in the School of Planning and Public Policy. Why don't you describe a little bit of that, that work that you're doing? Yeah, so how much time do you have? <laughs> yeah, so 
I, as you stated, I, I serve as a senior researcher with the Allen M. Voorhees Transportation Center. And so for people to quickly understand that we are, we are somewhat of a, a think tank, a transportation think tank within the university. We do a lot of planning policy and research work, both quantitative and qualitative research. And then I also, as you stated, serve as an adjunct professor at the LBJ Blaustein School of Planning and Public Policy. At the Blaustein School, I teach a graduate course on active transportation and complete streets. What I do is first year or second year graduate students who take my course have an opportunity to work on a complete streets plan for a local municipality. Uh, we try to, given my equity lens, to devote that class to a municipality that doesn't have the technical capacity or budget to do such a plan. So this is a win-win for the municipalities as well as the students who get an opportunity to create something that they can then market to their future employers. Uh, as a work product. At VTC, as a senior researcher, I oversee what's known as the New Jersey Bicycle and Pedestrian Resource Center, which is funded by the New Jersey Department of Transportation. I've been running the Resource Center now for nearly a decade. We do a number of things from outreach to the community to producing research reports on all topics related to biking and walking. Uh, chairing a statewide bicycle uh, advisory council, BPAC, for the state DOT, and then working on a, a whole host of other things in planning and policy that would take all day to kind of discuss. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that uh, it's only been about nine years or so that, you, that you've been in that particular area. Why don't you walk us through a, a little bit of your career path? How did you land in this career field? And then, you know, what brought you to, to Rutgers? Yeah, again, a, a really good question there. The short version of this is that I have 15 years of public and private sector experience, military experience, and academic experience. Um, I've been working across the country my entire career to create safe, healthy, and livable communities. Some of my more recent work and contributions include conducting a study on understanding barriers to biking and walking for women and minorities. I've done studies looking at the impact of crime on walking frequency and propensity. One of my latest pieces that I did for ITE, the Institute of Transportation Engineers, was looking at ways in which we can center and prioritize equity in transportation planning and decision-making. I've looked at barriers to accessing parks and open spaces. And then lastly, um, I've served in many capacities in terms of being an instructor for Smart Growth America, the National Transit Institute, Federal Transit Administration, Federal Highway Administration, and the CDC's Walkability Action Institute. So I enjoy doing research, doing planning, doing policy work, and then training others on, on what I know. In terms of my journey, I've been at Rutgers now for around uh, 10 years, close to 10. Prior to that, I served as a transportation planner for the city of Orlando in Orlando, Florida. And then prior to that, I served in the private sector for a, a private engineering company in Florida. And then prior to that in Mississippi, I served in another, 
I work for another private engineering company. And somewhere in between that, I served part-time in the military as well. So I was deployed during the Iraqi war. I stayed stateside, but um, proud patriot, happy to serve. Fantastic. That's great. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that that story. I, I knew that we had a, a couple of different other states involved uh, in, in that mix and everything. So it's neat to see how that sort of wove into uh, landing where you are today. Yeah. Let me proudly say, you know, born and reared in rural Mississippi, town of 500 people, Sugarlock, Mississippi. Uh, I was in a county called Noxabee County. So I moved from there to Florida, and then to New Jersey, spent some time, as I stated, in the Army, and uh, I did basic training in Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So not far from me here in, in Austin, Texas, if you were up there in, in Oklahoma. So you, you touched on a couple of things in that I'd love to unpack a little bit. Uh, one of the the three words that that sort of hit my radar screen were the safe, healthy, livable environments that you're exploring and, and, and sort of diving into. It's so important. It's, I, I harp on it so much about how communities need to create safe and inviting environments so that you can have that, that livability of the environment that's out there. And it has to be something that works for everyone, regardless of age, regardless of background, regardless of socioeconomic status needs to be that all ages and abilities, and it has to work for everyone. Talk a little bit about how you're weaving that in, in, in the work that you're doing, and, and, and maybe even specifically with the, the graduate students that you're working with. Well, first and foremost, my job is to ensure whether people know it or not, that to your point, is that everyone should have the right to a safe, a healthy, and a livable community. Uh, because we're in this space, we say that oftentimes we make the assumption that everyone knows that. However, my experience, both as a practitioner as well as an academic, is that while people may know that, the current realities are that most people don't have access to these places. So what I want to do first and foremost is be a voice for the voiceless and let everyone know that these things that we think are status quo are not for many of our low-income and minority communities. Secondly, what I do is I work with the students, again, to provide the technical expertise and capacity these cities need to create plans for these underserved communities. So this is leveraging the best of both worlds. Again, we're giving students an opportunity to develop empathy and build their portfolio but also use their skills as to the betterment of all of humanity by working with the communities who do not have the tools and the resources to do so themselves. In addition to that, you know, I work with people such as, such as Smart Growth America to advocate for, to encourage, and to advance completion policy adoption and implementation. So I've gone across this country talking about the importance of complete streets and what that means from a livability standpoint for these low-income and minority communities who unfortunately are disproportionately more likely to be victims of traffic violence. And as we know right now with George Floyd and many other things that are going on, they're also more likely to be victims of police violence and brutality as well. 
And these things, even though too often we work on them in a silo, they're all interrelated. And so I try to remind people of the importance of doing research uh, with intersectionality in mind, but also doing planning with intersectionalities in mind, uh, intersectionality in mind, because it's so critical and important uh, in how we frame, assess, and view our communities as well as ourselves. Yeah, and in addition to the traffic violence, there's also the the health uh, equities uh, side of thing in terms of just being able to to live a healthy, vibrant life. You know, and if safety is a is an inhibiting factor of that, or the perception of it isn't safe for me to go out onto my streets or into my parks or onto my trails, that's a huge barrier for being able to adopt and maintain a healthy, active lifestyle. And so again, the health inequities really sort of bubble up. So not only is it safety, it's also those. And, and in, some, in some communities, it could also even be uh, the lack of access to uh, healthy food choices too. Yeah, I mean, in terms of impact, there are health impacts, there are political impacts, social impact, as well as economic impacts. And what we know when it comes to those uh, different buckets of what we deem impacts, uh, low-income and minority people are disproportionately more likely to to suffer. So that's why intersectionality, that's why, you know, things such as environmental justice, uh, ADA, uh, safe routes to schools, safe routes to parks, open streets, all of these buzzwords and planning are, are critically important for the well-being of the underserved populations. And I think that is a good opportunity to interject and, and talk a little bit about another project that you're involved with, uh, with America Walks, and that's the Walking Towards Justice webinar series. Tell us a little bit more about that. Oh, man, John, you've done your, your homework here today. Um, so the, the, the Walking Towards Justice webinar series was an idea I'd had for some time. And what it is, first and foremost, is this sort of unapologetic, no filter space, no censoring space to talk about how decisions are impacting communities of color disproportionately. So what we do is we've combined what we think to be the best of both worlds, which is a book club and a very high energy webinar series together to provide a historical and political context around why we have the communities that we have. And of course, this is America Walks. So the context in this particular case is walking and walkability. But we feel like too often when you attend these webinars, or I should say I felt like too often when you attended these webinars around walking, walkability, who has, who doesn't have, they would be very politicized. People would be afraid to talk about, uh, in terms of history, how we got there, who was responsible for getting us here, and then what have been some of the, the negative impacts associated with those decisions. So this Walking Towards Justice webinar series was our attempt at creating a safe space for people of color, low-income people, as well as persons with disabilities and other minorities to talk freely and openly about their struggles um, 
each and every day around trying to walk, trying to be physically active, but not having in place the systems and the support to do so. But we didn't want to frame it as just an opinion. We wanted to bring text to the conversation. So we invite authors and others to join us in the conversation to provide not only some more context, but also uh, solutions to eradicate these issues. And we wanted to first to bring on uh, Richard Rothstein from The Color of Law to talk about how government has segregated America and then what ways in which the segregation is impacting walking and walkability. Fantastic. Yeah, that's it, that brings a lot into context because when we think about how dividing the infrastructure, the built environment, and when we look at the United States in terms of the automobility and how that sort of manifested itself after World War II, especially after World War II, with the the really the expansion of our motor vehicle network. And then the systemic issues that were just pervasive across city after city and region after region, even, you know, right here in, in Austin. I mean, we, we had a, a beautiful sort of eastern parkway that was, you know, torn out and I-35 was put in. It becomes a dividing line and it becomes a, a tool of segregation. Can you dive a little bit more into that? Because you have a, a view of right at the at the pointy tip of all of this and doing work all across the country in this in this realm. Yeah. So many people who've worked in the planning space or in transportation know that you can follow the interstate highway system. And what you are more likely to find are the scars that have basically uh, for lack of better words, destroyed black and brown thriving communities or black and brown communities in general. The, the interstate highway system spared none in destroying these communities. And that's very unfortunate. And these systems, these highway systems still remain today. And when we talk about, you know, the health outcomes or health inequities, uh, many of them are due to the very presence of these highway systems that have wrecked these black and brown communities. So you could choose whether it's, you know, East Austin, uh, whether it's St. Louis, Missouri, whether it's Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, New Jersey, you name the place, there has been a highway system that has destroyed a black or brown or low income community. And that same system is still damaging and destroying the quality of life for many of those populations to this day. And again, that is why when I have these conversations, whether they be in a webinar, be in a planning document or a program, it's important to not be a historical or a political. We must speak the truth about what actually happened so that we can create a framework and a roadmap around healing these communities. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When you look at these experiences and the, the work that you're doing, what are some of your biggest challenges that, that you face in, in trying to move this forward? Yes, I would say firstly, um, the biggest challenge is white fragility. We have a lot of, me and you both, Joe, we have a lot of well-meaning, really good white brothers and sisters who know 
that what we're talking about is true, but for some reason they'll internalize this as an attack on themselves instead of looking to solve the problem. So white fragility is definitely a challenge. In addition to that, I would say secondly, it is for those who don't know, educating them on why things are and doing this in a way, doing this very quickly because we don't have too much time to spare. Thirdly, it would be the demographic makeup of the planning profession, academia and otherwise, where you simply don't have enough people of color, whether it be men or women, working to or working at the forefront or having the power to make the decisions to change the communities of which they come from. And for those who are black and brown, many of those come from, you know, some privileged spaces. So they may not even identify with what is going on in these underserved communities. That's one of the reasons why I always say I'm very fortunate to have been reared in a very low-income rural environment and now having the opportunity to work in different environments across the country. I'm able to empathize with what is happening in the core of these cities as well as in the rural environments. So there's barriers around funding. There's barriers around having discussions about equity. There are just so many barriers. We could do a whole podcast on barriers alone. So when you look at these three things that you outlined here, what has surprised you the most about what's happening right now in the context of these three challenges that you sort of illustrated here? I'll use the first one as an example, the white fragility. This has been brought up to us right in the forefront. It's on the top of our, our mind right now. Are we making progress? Interesting question. And you've got three of them. So you yeah. don't have to, you know, have to do them in order. Right? Yeah. Are we, making- we, could, we could go to the demographic, yeah. which is number three. Let's start because- with number one, white yeah. fragility. Are yeah. we making progress? We're making progress in that, yes, we're starting to openly talk about the very existence of white fragility. That in itself is progress. When it comes to those who are suffering most from white fragility, I can't say definitive whether or not we're making progress, but what I can say is that I see a change, a difference among their children. Their children are out supporting Black Lives Matter. They are out advocating for the respects of sexual minorities and religious minority persons. So if the question was framed, do I have hope? Yes, my hope is that this will continue moving forward, this support of non-Black, non-Brown kids who are marching hand in hand with other Black and Brown people who are seeking justice. So yes, there's a change. To what degree? I'm not sure because I haven't studied the change itself, but there, there appears to be change, but the change is unequal in many ways. Uh, so I, I am, I place my hope in that of the younger generations more so than I do the very ones suffering from the fragility, because I think they may be too, too set in their ways to, to change at this point. But there are many, I should say, 
who have decided to put their bodies out front, to use their power, to advocate the same way their children are. So pros and cons, John. When we return, Charles addresses the blind spots that challenge us, the things that bring him the most joy, and provides us with a potential path forward. But first, allow me just a moment to highlight how you too can help support the Active Towns Initiative and this podcast. As a donor-backed 501c3 nonprofit, it's your generous contributions that offset the costs associated with creating this content. And we have several incredibly convenient ways for you to donate. Please make that commitment by clicking on the links provided in the show notes or just head over to ActiveTowns, that's plural, dot O-R-G and click on the donate button. Okay, that's all for this really quick break. Let's get back to our conversation with Charles Brown. What has surprised you the most about this work? I mean, if you th- if you think back a decade or so and you're like, wow, look at where we're at, you know, here in 2020, I would have never thunk it. So what surprised you the most about this, this work that you're doing right now? Great questions, man. The blind spots have surprised me the most. I had no idea how blind people would be to the importance of mobility in our everyday lives or access to this safe uh, and equitable uh, mobility. Most people live very privileged lives, heavily dependent and socialized to depend on the automobile. And so regardless of a person's income, race or ethnicity, I think too often, too many people are unaware of the role that transportation planning and decision-making plays in our everyday lives. So if I had not gone into this field, I'm not sure I would have been made aware of it so vividly neither. Uh, But it amazes me how much it impacts our lives, and yet so many people are unaware. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that's actually very profound. It, it reminds me a little bit of, of my journey to this point of thinking about urban planning and active mobility for the first 15 years of my career as a health promotion professional and a disease prevention professional. You know, I was working in a completely different arena and, you know, working with Fortune 500 companies for healthcare cost containment strategies. It wasn't until I really had a major move, making the move from Boulder, Colorado to Honolulu and seeing the difference between the built environment and how different it was. You'd think that moving to Hawaii would be, oh, this is this outdoor paradise. I can, you know, be able to walk and bike and run everywhere. But I was just blown away by how auto-centric it is. And it's incredibly dangerous out on the streets. And so it really shifted my paradigm from a public health perspective from the insular environments that I was working in to our entire community. And yeah, so, and I I saw you smile there. So there was like a, ah, yeah, exactly. A little bit of change in in environment is enough to kind of grab us by our scruff and shake us up a little bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. So here's another fun question for you. What, what brings you the most joy 
from what you're doing right now? You're loaded with the fun questions today. I, I like it. What brings me joy is being a voice for the voiceless, having the ability to be blessed enough to enter into rooms with some of the most powerful people on the planet, and the fact that I don't forget where I come from. Instead, what I do, I speak truth to power for those who who need their truths heard. And whenever I can be a beacon of light or a voice for those people, I sleep very well at night. It brings me a lot of joy. But anytime I feel like, and this hardly ever happens, I've, I've compromised to the detriment of those communities, meaning I was silent when I should have been vocal. That's when I'm not as joyful. So the joy is really about advocating you know, unapologetically through my work for those who are being disenfranchised. That brings me the most joy. Talk a little bit about your role as an educator. And I'm assuming that there, there's probably some joyful moments there when you see some of these graduate students like really get it. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, being a mentor is something, is also something that brings me joy. I didn't know you wanted a whole list of things. I just gave you the top one because <laughs> uh, I could have started with my family. My hey, we, we, we need more joy. <laughs> I could start with my, you know, my family. I have a beautiful family, a wife uh, with three kids. Uh, let's just put it on record that that brings me the most joy, seeing their happy faces, knowing that they know they have a daddy that's fighting for their future and a mom who's fighting for their future. So that brings me joy, number one. Then number two, it is speaking up for the communities of which I come from. That's so important because I've seen so many people getting these positions and forget where they come from or no longer remember what it took to simply survive in these communities. And these are, thirdly, is it would be, as you stated, I have the opp opportunity to work with some of the finest graduate students from all over the world, whether it be China, India, you know, uh, Latin America, you name it, they come there and I have an opportunity to um, work with them in creating plans and programs and research that is working to better the communities that we are fortunate to work in. And then lastly, I would say, because I didn't have time to think about this, Working with people like you and others in this space, planners, engineers, uh, health professionals, are some amazing people, the people that do this work. They truly love people, love community, and love the environment. And so having an opportunity to fraternize with them, to build and to grow with them, brings me a lot of joy. And these people are not just black, they're not just brown, they're all shades. They're all different sexualities, all different religions, and it has truly made me a better person. And I know the last time I saw you, you were actually here in town in Austin. Uh, we were uh, enjoying a dinner out a, at a nice uh, Mexican restaurant, which was easy biking distance for Laura and I to get to uh, from our house here. Uh, talk a little bit about that, because you, you do occasionally do some work with cities and, and head out on the road. So there is an ample opportunity 
for working with other advocates in other cities. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, as you can imagine, I probably feel um, I haven't talked about myself in a while. So it's, it's the most difficult thing to do because I don't talk about myself that often. But yes, I'm fortunate. I serve as a consultant to uh, the federal government, state governments and regional governments, as well as to nonprofits and um, other groups across the country, all over North America. And so what's beautiful about that is that it humbles you, no matter how many people deem that you deem you as an expert, what you quickly discover is that there are many similarities across these places, but there are many differences as well. And so you must be humble enough and respectful enough of those local cultures to come in and learn their history and their challenges. And because of that, I've become a better professional. I've learned to listen more intently and to not use a sort of one size fits all approach when advising these cities on how to create a better future for their residents. So I get a ton of joy out of doing keynote addresses and working with these different organizations and entities across North America. That is, too, one of my, my greatest joys. So one of the things that uh, prompted me to reach out to you to invite you onto the, uh, the Active Towns podcast was you had posted a photo in social media of, I believe it was your son, getting out on a bike, learning how to ride. And when I think back to some of the joys that I have as a kid, it's that learning how to ride a bike. Talk a little bit about that. That was a really proud moment for me, John, in a selfish way. It was proud because that picture you speak of, that moment in time, represented a few things for me. First and foremost, uh, I realized he's the oldest. I'm a, I'm a father, you know. Uh, I wasn't reared with my father. Uh, my mother took care of both of those roles and did a, a damn good job at it. So I realized that I was now doing something that my father didn't do by being there with him, teaching him how to ride a bicycle. So that meant a lot. But in addition to that, I never had a bicycle growing up. Let me correct that. I never had a new bicycle growing up. Every Christmas, I would look for the bike under the tree. But because we grew up, uh, we grew up uh, in a very low-income community, I wasn't fortunate to get one until I was much older. But I was able to provide my son with a new bicycle and just seeing the joy on his face, the happiness gave me that same feeling. And then in a more broader sense, I knew that I was giving him freedom, a new form of freedom, a form of appreciation for a mode that is not talked about outside of our circles, and that is the bicycle. And seeing him bike, seeing the freedom, seeing the joy on his face, I talk about intersections a lot. That was one of those intersectional moments that uh, I'll never forget. And I've since, of course, taught my daughter how to be free on the bicycle and my youngest son as well. So that was a special moment, man. I'm glad you got a chance to see it as well and reminded me of it. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's good stuff. What are some of the earliest memories you have of being out on a bike? So the early memories, of course, on the bike is going down hills really, really fast, jumping over these sort of man-made ramps we would make and get injured on, but it was all fun and games in rural Mississippi. But the biggest piece was just riding with your homies, your boys in the neighborhood, talking about, dreaming about, discussing what you're going to be when you grow up. We would always talk about that. And then the piece that I, that I also enjoyed was finding these scrap parts and building my bike from start and uh, from scratch, I mean. And so I built a bike called Bumblebee, Bumblebee. I found these, this black and yellow frame. And um, I had a mountain bike tire on the back with a 20-inch tire on the front. It looked like a hot rod. I thought I could beat everyone with it. And so I remember that very vividly. That was that was my first bike. So those are some things that I, I remember and appreciate about uh, my early childhood with the bicycle. Free. Yeah, me, very similar to, to me as well, especially the ramps and, and being <laughs> able to get out with friends and, and get around, which brings me around to a, a concept that we talk a lot about, which is this concept of free range kids, you know, being able to navigate through their community, be able to get to friends, get to meaningful destinations, get to events and be able to do so under their own power of being able to walk or bike or even use transit if, if that's available to them. And so when we talk about creating a culture of activity Oftentimes it's, it's, it's twofold. It's to use sort of a computer analogy, and maybe this isn't the best analogy to use, but it's that hardware and software. It's the built environment, the stuff that we have on the ground, uh, whether it be a protected bikeway or a separated path, uh, even a park. You know, that's the built environment that we have out there. But then the software is literally the layering on top of that. It's the policies that brought that hardware into existence as as well as many other aspects of the programming and the encouragement to activities. So talk a little bit about how all of that has to kind of be jiving and working in concert so that we can have more free range kids. <laughs> that, that's a that's a lot to unpack there. What I, what I instead of responding directly to that, because I think You've answered the question that you're you're trying to get me to expound on. All of the all of those things are needed to have free range kids. But in addition to that, we need parents to not be so fearful. We need parents to allow their kids to be free. We don't need to take that freedom away from them. We need them to allow their kids to discover that may come with some bumps and bruises, and I have many of them, scars from making decisions as a free range kid that I probably should not have made. But I would tell you this, uh, I've learned more from my failures than I've ever learned from my successes. So the very fact that my mother allowed me to be a free range kid, to bike from sunup to sundown, to just go without her hovering over me, uh, contributed to the leader I am today. It contributed to me not being fearful 
about very trivial things. And it also helps make me a, a strong advocate for biking and walking right now. So parents just got to get out of the way, man. Let, let people be themselves. When we think about parents and we think about free range kids, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, parents do need to be, you know, more open. They need to be more open. And so we have to deal with that, that fear factor. And oftentimes the stranger danger and the fear factor of, of, you know, something bad is going to happen. And so as parents that, you know, maybe they want to, or they're encouraged or they feel their gut instinct is to hold on tighter. So that's a tough thing to, to sort of counter. And you're a parent, I'm not. So you're going to be much more qualified than I am on this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I understand that. I, I do think in some communities that is a very legitimate concern. However, in a in a great majority of them, it is not. And which fear you should have is going to vary depending on where you live, who you interact with, and whether or not you have access to safe places to bike and walk. So fear is legitimate, but I think it is overdone. When it comes to my kids, of course, uh, we allow them to be free range within reason, especially the 10-year-old. But we don't want to put so much fear, burden him with so much fear that he doesn't want to move. He's paralyzed in place Uh, because that's not how I was reared. Again, I am not opposed to kids making decisions that don't turn out as well as we would thought they would. I'm not saying they make a decision that leads to a death or injury, but I think in order for kids to be highly functioning adults, you have to, at a very young age, trust them, give them chores, hold them accountable, and then see what happens. Don't put them in harm's way, but allow them to be free thinkers and free movers within society so that, again, you're not paralyzing them with fear. You're not projecting in many ways in which parents do. But I'm no parent expert. I just know that my mom raised me to be free and I'm free now. So I believe if she had reared me in fear, I would be fearful now. So I want to raise my kids in freedom. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a, a wonderful way to put it, and it it reminds me of some of the things that uh, I saw when I was uh, visiting the the Netherlands uh, on the last two uh, study tours with the People for Bikes Foundation, and you know, being able to observe the the younger kids and the the young teens uh, being able to get about in their community. Uh, getting to school on their own, going in their little posses, it, again, brought back that smiling, you know, or that great memory of, of getting places with my, my little posse as well. So that was, that's all good stuff. So do you have any uh, last things that you want to uh, cover before I uh, pitch to your final question? Uh, the only thing I would like to cover is climate change means a lot to me, the climate crisis. I didn't state early on, I am a 2020 fellow within the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, which is in partnership with the Opt-Ed Project. We're we're just starting that fellowship, but what I'm looking to get out of that is the tools and the resources and the means to 
articulate the importance of addressing the climate crises. I am a survivor of both Hurricane Katrina when I was in Mississippi and Hurricane Sandy here in New Jersey. And going back to this earlier discussion about intersections, there's a clear link between the transportation crises and the climate crises. So I really hope that we all become better stewards of our environment and not only the physical environment, but also the people and the places around us as well. Other than that, the active transportation movement is a very strong movement. It's not as diverse as it could be along the racial, ethnic, and gender lines. But I'm hopeful that of the people that are involved, um, we're going to bring about the change uh, that is necessary to move forth these disenfranchised and underserved communities. So it's been a pleasure kind of talking about that, sharing my journey and uh, the work that I'm trying to do. The thing, if people are looking for a takeaway in terms of what I'm saying, if people want to know who I am, I am a fighter for all people. I'm a fighter for the environment. I think we're all connected, you know, people, the environment, the animals, the plants. I think when you harm one, you harm all. Uh, There's an old African proverb that says, I am because we are. I think that we is speaking more broadly to the things that I've mentioned. And so the work that I do, the positions that I take, I take those positions not because they're popular. And I think what you're going to start seeing in these equity conversations before COVID, there were those like myself who were talking about equity and its importance in planning and transportation. Then there's AC after COVID, many of which who are trying to now capitalize on Black pain, Black suffering. But we're also growing a new crop of individuals who are unapologetically too, who have been awakened around these issues associated with any inequality and inequity in our cities, not only for people, but also for the environment as well. So I do think there's been a change that's happening, and it's a change that's going to benefit us all if we embrace that change. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. What advice do you have for someone wanting to make a difference in their community? And and you can you you can free flow with this. The someone can be an individual or it can be a group of people, just someone who wants to make a difference in their community. Yeah, and and so I I thought about it. I've been thinking about it since we we chatted and I come up with a lot of, you know, profound things I could say. But what I try to do is to look internally at what my journey has been and then answer from that perspective, my lived experience. The the honest truth, and this is as simple as it comes, before you can change your community, John, you got to first look inside and change yourself. If you're not willing to be true to yourself, and those around you, you're not fit to change your community because whatever traumas, whatever things you're dealing with as you're trying to change the community, you're simply going to project those biases, those traumas on the community. So if you're real about changing the community, first change yourself. Then secondly, 
seek to change or influence those inside of your household, your individual home, because many of us know we lie down each night, we have dinner each night with people whose thoughts, whose values and morals may be counter to the very thing that we're preaching in the communities we want to change. So let's change those people inside our own, our own homes. And then from there, let's go to our neighbors. Let's talk to our neighbors about what we've learned and why this is important. And once we've dealt with the neighbors, let's go outside of our community and start talking to people in other communities until you've spoken to as many people as possible. But remembering that change first must happen within you before it can happen anywhere else. And to not change yourself is to live a lie. And none of these communities need more liars in power. Absolutely. I love it. That's so beautiful. And it's, it's be the change. Be, be the, the change. change. It's simple. It, yep. it sounds very simple, but it's very difficult to do. Yep. But um, it's the best way to go about it. It's moving forward, living, living an authentic life. Yes. 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 And also, I would add, don't care what people think or say about you. As long as you are doing the work, that's all that matters. My mom tells me all the time, you're not as good as they say you are, and you're not as bad as they say you are. So I keep those two things in mind, and I don't care what people think. When you're doing that work for the community, you're going to receive a lot of praise, and you're going to receive, receive a lot of uh, negative press as well. So do what's right and let history write itself. I love it. That's very smart advice and insights from mom right there. I love it. Charles, thank you so very much uh, for joining me on the Active Towns podcast. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah, it was an absolute pleasure. I appreciate all the, the new questions. Everyone will know that you did a great job not giving me a script. Uh, so you put me in a lot of deep thinking for these questions. They were absolutely wonderful. And uh, I want you to know, brother to brother, John, I'm here for you and your family should you need anything. Uh, so I thank you for your time. I value your time and I look forward to building and bonding with you in the near future. Thank you so much and right back at you. All right. Take care, man. Thank you all so very much for listening. I hope this conversation with Charles has provided some fresh insights and inspired you to take action. For more information, be sure to check out the links provided in the show notes. Before we part ways, just a quick reminder to drop me a line if you have any suggested topics or guests. It's always so wonderful to hear from y'all. My email is john, that's J-O-H-N, at activetowns, that's plural, dot O-R-G. And as always, if you're enjoying the Active Towns podcast, please be sure to subscribe and rate on the listening platform of your choice and help us grow our audience by telling a friend or two. Okay, that's all for episode number 36. Thanks once again for listening. Get out there and make a difference. Please take care of yourselves and one another. And until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. Cheers.